Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Mark Whedon joins the show again. On March 25th, 2021, Dr. Whedon joined the show and we had a conversation about the previous group of people that are commonly known as in modern times as the Hittites. And so in that conversation, we explored what scholars know about their civilization. It was an overview type format. Their associated kingdom was called the Kingdom of Hattusa. In today's episode, Dr. Whedon joins the show again, and we're going to explore what scholars know about the Kingdom of Hattusa in the 17th and 16th centuries BCE. So the 1600s and 1500s BCE. Dr. Whedon is Associate Professor in Ancient Middle Eastern Languages at University College London, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the book, Hittite Logograms and Hittite Scholarship, which was published by Otto Horosowitz. And he's co-editor of the book, Hittite Landscape and Geography, which was published by Brill. And Dr. Whedon joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Mark. Hello, thank you for having me. Good to connect with you again, Mark. Episode, yeah, episode, the last time you were on the show would have been March, would have been in March 2021, because that's when the Ithaca Bound podcast uh, launched. And the, the episode that we did was number, number four in the, in the series. So thank you for, for being a guest in, in, the, uh, in the early days of the podcast. No worries. Okay, so to create enough background and context, for the conversation, Mark, and then we'll work our way into the details. What was the kingdom of Hattusa? Well, um, well, what we're going to talk about today a little bit is how this kingdom arose. I mean, the kingdom of Hattusa was a kingdom, um, a political entity, if you want to take a really neutral way of describing it, that arose in the 17th century in central Anatolia, central Turkey. Um, based around a town called Hattusa, or a city, in fact, called Hattusa, which is modern-day Boazkale, or as it was in the earlier 20th century, Boazkui, they changed the name. So this is a Turkish village today, but um, it has attached to it these enormous ruins that um, people started to get interested in um, in the 19th century, uh, where large amounts of clay tablets were discovered with cuneiform writing on them that told us all about this uh, civilization that had really only been heard about prior to these discoveries in the Bible as the Hittim, uh, which we translate as the Hittites. You might have heard of Uriah the Hittite and people like that uh, from the Bible. So this is essentially what that was these were those people uh or not exactly the same but um uh, because the hittites of the bible were from about uh yeah 500 or so years later but um this is essentially what that kingdom is it's centered around this town which is in the middle of central anatolia hattusa and the term hittite is a political one really rather than an ethnic one which denotes um, any area that the Hittites ruled over or people who felt they had a loyalty to um, the elites who were in charge in this town called Hattusa modern-day Bazkui so that's what we're talking about um, so would you like me to talk a little bit about kind of historical setting then and how this kingdom arose yeah, I want to I want to get to that in a moment, Mark. But before we before we get there, I want to touch on and, and ask you to expand on a point that you made naturally in the response you just provided, and it's around sources. So can you expand? And you mentioned cuneiform. Um, can you expand on? So when we're talking about the 17th and 16th centuries, can you expand on what scholars rely on to understand who these people were and how they lived and how the how the, the their kingdom functioned? in these two centuries. 
yeah absolutely that's definitely what i want to do um so when this town um the royal archives of the city of hattusa were excavated uh, and are still being excavated in fact all these thousands of cuneiform tablets were found now cuneiform is a writing system that was invented in mesopotamia in ancient iraq and was imported into um ancient anatolia turkey um well we're not exactly sure when but it, at, at various different times it was imported in fact it, um, for different purposes during the second millennium bc so from the beginning of the second millennium bc say the 19th and 18th centuries bc we have around 23,000 tablets cuneiform tablets that belong to Assyrian traders who were living in central Anatolia at a place called Kanesh, um, which is what the Hittites called it, uh, modern day Kultepe. And we've got about 23,000 documents that uh, were written by these traders who came from northern Iraq, um, Assyria. And uh, so we've got all sorts of memoranda, receipts, letters they wrote to each other. All the paraphernalia of a long distance trade that went on for a long time uh, a couple of hundred years you have all these merchants from assyria living there and so that's one really important uh, part of documentation that we have then you have um next to the text from that period you have the archaeology so the kind of houses that people lived in the implements they used uh, what they ate, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's very important to, dis to study texts and the archaeology together. So that's for the very earliest period of the second millennium BC. Once we get down to the Hittites, then um, we have all these Hittite tablets, cuneiform tablets that were um, stored in the archives of the capital city. And we've got about 30,000 of them from Hattusa. There's others coming up from cities that, uh, other cities that have been excavated more recently. So we've got about another 5,000 from a place called Autokoi, which is about um, 60, 70 kilometers away. Um, we've got a um, couple of hundred from a place called Kushakla, which is a little bit further away. There's, there's new ones coming up all the time. So we're really getting more and more of an idea of uh, the written culture that was going on um, in this Hittite kingdom. And it was a little bit different the way the Hittites used cuneiform to the way, say, the Assyrians used it or the way it was used in Iraq and Syria in the ancient world. We don't get in Hittite cuneiform exactly the kind of thing that you get with the Assyrians. You don't get economic documents what you get is much more ritual focused they were very keen on documenting ritual procedures and passing them down festivals that kind of thing uh, sometimes in very great detail and they were also very interested in history so um one could in fact call the hittites the first historians although i'm not terribly keen on um saying various people were the first to do this that and the other but they were very obsessed with researching and writing down their own history and they had various reasons for doing this it's not necessarily to do with um or saying i am the greatest and that kind of stuff um, which is what you usually get in royal inscriptions say from mesopotamia um it's often about trying to research things that have happened in the past that might have had some sort of causal effect on things that are happening now which is very very interesting they have a real historical consciousness it's things like working out um whether the gods are displeased for something that happened way back in the past they don't say this explicitly, but this is my feeling of why they're composing these historical texts frequently. And not only why they're composing them, but why they are so interested in uh, 
in copying them and keeping them right the way through the history of the Hittite kingdom from say um, 1650 BC through to 1200 BC, which is when it uh, comes to an end. So for reconstructing the history, we actually have historical documents, which is something quite unusual for this period. There's a lot of letters they wrote as well. I've mentioned the festivals and rituals, so we can get a good idea of their religious life. We can get a, a good idea of um, political history. And uh, from the letters that they wrote, there's not a huge amount of them. I mean, there's only about 700, getting on for a thousand letters um, preserved. Uh, we can get a, a good idea of how they communicated with each other and that those those letters also um, fit in with the political history too. So yeah, we've got quite a lot of sources really. Um, they're not always written at the time things were happening. Quite often they are historical documents that are trying to recall earlier events, but um, it's more than we have for most cultures at this period. It's very interesting, Mark. How, how much out of the, the corpus, I think you said there was about 30,000 uh, pieces that um, have, been, have been found in more modern times. Um, how, how, what percentage roughly do you think those would be cited to the 17th and 16th century? So were actually written contemporarily in the period that we're speaking about today? Very, very few. Very, very okay. few. Most of the, well, um, well make, you have to make a few distinctions here. So we've got, we think we're pretty clear about when these clay tablets were written down because of the style of handwriting that's used on them. There's a lot of debate about this, but um, it seems that there are about 300 tablets that must have been 300 clay cuneiform tablets that must have been written during around this period, I would say, or let's say at least around the late 16th century. Um, very, very few that go back at all to uh, the period of the 17th century. Very few indeed. So bits and pieces here and there is all we can talk about. And as for documents that were actually written down around the time of the late 16th century, maybe early 15th century, there's only 300 in total out of 30,000 from, um, from the capital city at Hattusa. So this is, a, this is a very small number, absolutely. But a lot of the texts that they wrote, the historical texts that they wrote, they passed down and they carried on copying, you know, like uh, manuscripts from generation to generation. And so a lot of the texts that we have about this early period have been handed down and copied uh, from the earlier period. And you can sometimes tell uh, in the language that there's elements of older language in the text and there's bits where it's been modernized and stuff like that. Um, but we can tell from the writing that, uh, that the actual tablets that we're reading from are, are much later. So there's a mixture. Some, some are old tablets, some are later, later ones. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a small amount of the total percentage. Yes. And in some ways, not too dissimilar to topics like when you're looking at uh, history with, with Greece or Rome, where there's certain historians who may not have lived contemporarily at the time that they're, they're writing about. But they but they wrote about something and they they found that information we they found that information from from somewhere we can we can presume. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Presumably, there was a um, very important oral tradition. So quite often you get the impression that what they're doing is collecting oral traditions about things. Um, again, it's never quite clear what the reason is for writing these texts. My suspicion is because they always seem to be talking either about um, dreadful disasters that have happened or something like that. Um, quite often you get the impression that they're trying to, they're trying to investigate what has caused something bad that's happened, some kind of catastrophe. Um, I mean, one of the really extraordinary 
most extraordinary um, pieces of history uh, writing is um, the Annals of Morsley II. This is after the period we're talking about, who's talking about his father, Superlilluma I. And you get the impression through reading those that he's trying to present his father as a kind of pious person um, who did make mistakes. He did some things wrong that he shouldn't have done, absolutely. Um, but were those few mistakes he made, uh, were they really enough reason for the gods to afflict the Hittite lands with the huge plague that decimated the population? You know, and the, the, it's this kind of research into what has happened and what's causing the, the situation that we're in at the moment um, that I think is, is lying behind what they're, what they're up to. So yes, there would have been records, I'm absolutely sure, that we still don't have, uh, that haven't survived, um, but also there would have been oral traditions. Have any building architecture, architecture been found that is cited to the 17th and 16th centuries? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, for the old Assyrian period, for the uh, um, Kultepe site, you know, it's just as the same for, for Hattusur and the other sites. Archaeology is so important to, be ta to take archaeology into account and the archaeological findings, rather than just relying on text, is so important for reconstructing history. And it was thought that most of the city of Hattusur was built in um, a much later period. So you've got this large area referred to as the upper city, which uh, was mainly populated by temples. There's about 30 temples there. Um, and then you've got the great temple, which is down in the lower city, and where you have the temple of the storm god um, and his spouse, uh, Hebat. And, uh, the, and you've got the citadel as well. And the upper city and the great temple were thought to have been built much later. They were thought to have been built in the empire period, as it's called, which sets in in the 14th century BC, so long after the time that we're talking about. But all this has changed in recent years. Um, so in the last 20 years or so, these preconceived notions about when these areas were built up which relied to a great extent on the information that the texts gave us, they've all been shown to be wrong um, by using more rigorous application of carbon-14 dating and similar methods. It's been possible to show that large parts of the upper city, or at least three of the temples in the upper city anyway, and uh, a, a larger wall called the the, the Poston Wall, which um, um, is connected to the upper city and essentially uh, runs along the um, outskirts of the citadel where the palace was, that this must have been built in the 16th century. In fact, the early 16th century, possibly even before. So we have this upper city, this temple area being built in the 16th century. Um, certainly. Uh, the, the citadel with the palace, the first buildings on that um, that we have, uh, the first palatial buildings, well, they go back even before the 17th century, I would think, but, the, but we get some major reorganization happening then. And it's also now become clear, um, contrary to um, previous assumptions, that the great temple, the temple of the storm god down in the lower city, which is the first thing you see when you come in from the, um, from the north into the, uh, into the city through the gate, that must have been built again, early 16th century, maybe even 17th century. So we're talking there about big buildings that are already being erected in this, this very early period. Yes. Okay. You wanted to touch on which certainly pertains to the, 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 the catchment of this episode, um, how they gained hegemony. And I also had a similar question that I think is related. So I'm going to frame it like, like this. You knew that I wanted to cover 
an early century or possibly two centuries if it made um, constructive sense for for the conversation. You had you had su- suggested in response to that um, that idea and that that request is that we we cover today the 17th and 16th centuries. So why did you make the suggestion out of any early centuries, century or centuries that we could have covered? Why did you suggest the 17th and 16th centuries for this episode, for this conversation today? And does that tie into it all your earlier comment about, uh, and I'm using my, 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 my words, but materially the same, them, them gaining hegemony in this area? The what hegemony? Uh, them gaining he- hegemony in, oh, yeah. in this area, becoming a kingdom, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that is the time, the 17th century is precisely the time when this is happening. So um, this is where a centralized state, which is based at this city of Hattusa in uh, central Anatolia, starts to emerge. And we start seeing um, signs of what can be only be described as a state centralization um, or attempts to form a centralized state. I mean, the topography, the landscape of Anatolia, of central Turkey, is really, really fragmented because it's very, very mountainous. Um, it's very high as well. You know, it's uh, most of the central Anatolian plateau is around a thousand meters above sea level. So we're talking about. Um, places that will have had very long winters, for example. And no one really built any kind of centralized state with its center in this kind of central Anatolian area on the plateau um, until the Turkish Republic with its capital at Ankara. Uh, You know, the Ottomans had their capitals elsewhere. Um, But to build a central state with its center in uh, in the area where Hattusa is, it was quite an extraordinary thing to have done, especially in this ancient period. And it's at this time that we we see this transformation starting to happen from what was obviously the case in the nineteenth eighteenth uh, centuries, where we have this documentation from this place called Kultepe with the Assyrian traders and all that kind of stuff. Um, where it's rather clear that the whole of Anatolia is divided up into basically small city-states, which are sometimes at war with each other, sometimes get on with each other, um, and they're all participating in this this trade in um, copper, mainly, um, because there's large copper resources in Anatolia. Um, And uh tin and uh textiles as well that the um assyrians are bringing from um uh from mesopotamia so that they're, they're all participating in this trade that we have documented from uh the assyrian tablets and the world that is revealed there is as i say a world of small city states and what we begin to see in the 17th century is the signs of unification. And in fact, this is what the Hittites tell us happened. Uh, We have to obviously be a bit wary of believing exactly what they say. You know, when they say they set up this wonderful centralized state and all that, uh, you've got to be a bit careful about it because it does appear that throughout history, um, one of the motivating uh, forces or one of the key force um, key factors of their history is that they are unable to keep this centralized state very unified and one of the factors that contributes to this although they don't recognize it um, but seems rather obvious is the difficulty of keeping a unified state uh, together in this very very hostile and fragmented environment topographically fragmented environment so it's exactly then at this time that we begin to see this this happening. And what's happening is, I suppose, is that um, you have this 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 circle of trade that goes on. Uh, basically, all the copper deposits and mineral deposits are around the 
outskirts of central Anatolia. I mean, not all of them, but I mean, there's, there's other, other ones dotted around uh, the center of central Anatolia. But um, it appears that the trade that we can reconstruct from the Assyrian documents seems to have gone around in a circle from this place called Kanesh Kultepe that uh, was, seems to have been the major hub. And that was on the river Kizil Irmak, which is um, uh, 150 kilometers or whatever to the south east of Hattusa. And it seems to have gone, the trade seems to have gone in a big circle uh, to the west and then to the north and then to the east and then back down to this place, Kanesh Kultepe. And right in the center of that circle is this city of Hattusa this location that the Hittites ended up settling down at and, um, and, you, and building into uh, the base of their, of their operations. Uh, although they did move capitals a few times during the history, but whatever. And so they seem to have focused in on the very center of this trade network. Furthermore, um, they seem to have been very interested in mountains and springs and water features and that kind of stuff. And this is an extremely mountainous, rugged place. I mean, it, it's really worth visiting if anyone's thinking of going there. It's in, you've, got, you've got these huge rocky crags that just emerge right in the middle of the city. Um, and they built their buildings up against them, as it were. Uh, so they really used the mountainous terrain. And it's quite clear that they, they had some sort of it seems very likely that they had some sort of religious connection with a place with a topography like this. So you've got economic reasons why they're choosing this as their capital and also religious ideological reasons as well uh, that, um, that are important. And what we then begin to see, I mean, so from the archaeological perspective, I suppose, is that the cities that um, were previously very disparate and just had their own interests, they all start to become integrated into what we might call the Hittite package. And this Hittite package includes things like um, hieroglyphic writing, which starts to develop. And we've talked about cuneiform writing, but the Hittites also developed their own Anatolian hieroglyphic writing, which is very beautiful. And um, if you go to the Ankara Museum of uh, Anatolian Civilizations, you'll see lots of examples of it. Um, but so they developed this hieroglyphic writing on seals, little stamp seals. We've got thousands of these things um, they use to, to signify ownership or whatever. But the development of a hieroglyphic script, you know, which is something different to just writing a symbol and saying that's my symbol because people who don't know that that's your symbol they're not going to know that that's your object you know um it's very different to develop a script that you have to be taught how to write and to read um and you can write your name on something and someone can read your name and that that's that is when that kind of thing starts happening then you really know that there's a territorial state-like formation developing. Uh, another thing that they had um, that we begin to see in a number of places in central Anatolia is grain silos, absolutely enormous uh, installations, usually underground, uh, well, always underground. I mean, they've got this method of uh, storing grain, which involves packing it underground in these underground pits or at silos um, and then packing them with with uh, straw packing the sides with straw and then you put the grain in you seal it and basically the straw decomposes um, and essentially all the, the oxygen gets completely and utterly sucked out of the grain and then the grain kind of gets kept on its own and any rodents that get in and stuff like that suffocate so um, it's a really good way of keeping grain and we've got these enormous, absolutely enormous silos at a number of sites. So there's, there's these very large ones at Hattusa itself, 
from around 1600 or so, maybe a bit earlier, maybe a bit later. Um, and we've got them at another site called Kamankalahuk, which has been excavated for a long time by a Japanese team. And uh, there's uh, further ones at Alajahuk. Um, they have a network of these things, basically. And they store much more grain, usually, than would be necessary to feed the local population. So this, was, this is big storage for crises or long periods of time. Um, again, the kind of activity that you only really see when there's a, when there's a state um, that's coordinating things. And this really all starts to happen in that period. Another, another uh, item of the Hittite package, I think we could say, is um, dams and water management. They very interested, I and mean, possibly it's a little bit later than the period that uh, we're talking about, but they're very interested in um, water management, in building dams around uh, the cities. So this is probably, I think, quite an early example from Kushakla, Sarissa, um, which is uh, to, well, quite far to the southeast of Hattusa. Um, and you've got other dams that have been found from, um, from quite near Hattusa. And uh, yeah, so th the, these dams and water management as well, this um, too seems to be a state-forming kind of activity that they're doing, that they, they carry on performing right through the uh, period of Hittite history. So yes, this is the period when you start, start seeing that happening from the archeological perspective. And then we have the texts as well. So as I said earlier, it's really important not to, you know, just uh, take the text at face value and say what the text was saying is absolutely right. But quite often it turns out that something, <laughs> something very much like what the text is saying is actually what's going on. Um, mm. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you, Mark. And some interesting comments that you made, made there in uh, describing their, their state. The last time we chatted, you mentioned that their language is, that there's consensus that their language, it falls within the family of Indo-European. Would that, is that they're tied to their cuneiform writing? their hieroglyphic writing or both? Yeah, that's again a very good question. Um, so we only have, we only really have Hittite, with the language we call Hittite. They called it, strangely enough, the language of Nesa. And Nesa was their name for the town of Kanesh, which is this site of Kultepe, which produced all these um, merchants' documents. And they called it the language of Nesa. So for some reason, they really associated this language with, um, uh, with, that, uh, with the language spoken at, at Kanesh, Nesa. And we today, yes, classify it as an Indo-European language, absolutely. Um, but they only use that language in the cuneiform documents. So we don't have much evidence for it outside of cuneiform. Um, the, there's a couple of things in hieroglyphic that might be interpreted as being Hittite. However, the hieroglyphic writing, the Anatolian hieroglyphic writing is used to write a language called Luwian, which is closely related to Hittite in the same way as say uh, Spanish and Italian. Um, so I would imagine people could sort of understand each other um, if they're speaking Luwian and Hittite. But the, for some reason, the hieroglyphic inscriptions are all written in Luwian. And there's various explanations for that. Um, it's quite possible, though, that an early stage where we don't have that many long hieroglyphic inscriptions, we've only got sort of short inscriptions on seals, it's quite possible that at an early stage they were also using the hieroglyphic script for writing um, for writing Hittite. When we chatted last on the same point, you had used a, a term, and uh, please bear bear with me because I didn't I didn't double check the term prior to coming on this show, so I'm I'm somewhat going by by recollection. 
but what I remember is Vater. And you had said that that is an obvious cognate that we'd be familiar with today in English as as water. So when you re when you referenced that in the last episode, so is that believed that that was a word within Na Nasa, the the language of Nasa? And um, please please uh, uh, please share that 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 word as well if you need to update the pronunciation in any way. <laughs> uh, well, it's Wadar, I suppose. Wadar um, yeah. is the word for water, and yes, that's that's a Hittite word. I'm not sure that we know the the Luwian word for water. Um, but it would have been something similar. There's no reason why it shouldn't have been something similar. Um, but yes, that, that's, that's a Hittite word. And that's actually one of the first words that um, uh, helped with the decipherment of the language. So um, someone was reading a text um, and trying to decipher the Hittite form of cuneiform. I think I mentioned this last time, did I? And uh, he came across this bit where they had the word for bread in Sumerian and which we discussed we deciphered Sumerian already and then it had the word for water which was wadar and he thought uh-huh this is an Indo-European language um so yes uh, that that helped with the deciphering a great deal is anything known about the type of government that they would have had in this period of time was it a monarchy was it an oligarchy? Was it something else? Mm. Okay. So we're talking now about the um, uh, 17th, 16th centuries. Yes. Uh, at the early period, um, as I say, we had these city-states, and most of them seemed to have a king and a queen. But it's not impossible that there were others that had different forms of government. And every now and then the Hittites in their text talk about various people they've encountered who, who don't seem to have the same form of government as them. So it's quite possible that there was there were various different forms of government in different places, different little city-states city um, throughout central Anatolia in, um, let's say, the 19th and 18th centuries BC. And one of the features of this, this centralized state formation that you start getting um, in the 17th century BC with the rise of the Hittites uh, at their capital of Hattusa is that you have this one king, basically. Now, a lot of the early texts, there's a text called the Palace Chronicles, for example, which is basically a series of anecdotes, kind of moralistic anecdotes, which basically paint the king in a good, good light. Um, and sort of poke fun at um, various uh, members of the court or whatever, if you can talk about, about a court. But these texts also indicate that um, we're very close to a more, to a different kind of society at this stage. So it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion that you just had one king who's ruling over the area. And I think I think the fact that that um, the whole of this area was divided up into these previously for several hundred years small competing principalities or um, competing statelets, if you like, uh, these the fact that the Hittites or the, the Hittite form of governance is based around one king seems to have caused all sorts of problems because various parts of the larger royal family, if you like, um, or um, various competing interests from other areas of central Anatolia are must be behind the absolutely huge amount of continuous murder and mayhem that goes on in the early years of documented hist Hittite history. So uh, we have these texts then, such as the Palace Chronicles, which um, in some parts point to a situation where you have the king as a first among, among equals kind of thing, like where they're, they're all sitting around a banquet table and you've got the, the, the man from this town and the man from that town. And it seems to be a much more federal kind of arrangement. And that's very interesting. So the, the, 
image we get from royal inscriptions, say in Mesopotamia, is you know there's just one king and that's it. Um, but frequently the image we get from yeah and and from you know the the the, the Hittite texts as well. You know that they they're very clear that they're the king who's talking is the only king who has any right to have anything to say about anything. But certainly at the er in the early period, you get the idea that um, the first kings have to give a lot more latitude to the representatives or leaders of other towns or city-states in the area. Um, and it's not taken for granted that this is the way things have to be. Um, later on, um, for example, there's this, this, this famous example where um, later on, say in the, in the 14th century, there's this this uh, famous or yes is it the 14th century yes um, there's this example where the Hittite king refers to the Kaska people and Kaska people are people who live kind of on the outskirts of the Hittite kingdom possibly agro pastoralist semi nomadic lifestyles that kind of thing the kind of people you can't control very easily. And he refers to them with the words, they don't do the thing of one king, which is like, okay, so there's some other form of government going on here. Um, and it was possible for there to be various different forms of government in various different places at the same time. And especially in this earlier period, I think is, uh, the, this is some of the, the cause of some of the tensions that uh, are manifested in, um, in, in the historical narrative as we can reconstruct it from, from the texts, if you read between the lines. Uh, as I say, the texts are written usually um, for their own purposes. They're not supposed to be uh, an entirely objective representation. Um, well, no historical text is, but they, if you read between the lines, it's quite clear that, um, that the, there's some tension here about what kind of form of government is actually the right one and best for central Anatolia. Um, tensions that uh, usually result in quite a bit of bloodshed. Do scholars believe that the, the people of the kingdom of Hattusa were, do scholars believe that they were, do they consider them indigenous? Were they, were, is there evidence that they've been around, let's say, a, a couple hundred years by this, by this point? Or is there evidence that they, they recently, you know, during or before, recently before the 17th century, came from outside of the Anatolian Peninsula? So the... The conventional narrative is that these are Indo-European invaders um, who must have arrived at some point uh, and kind of dominated the local population. And people have wondered whether it would have been 3000 BC or 2000 BC or whatever. Certainly they're around at the time, people speaking Hittite are around at the time of these Assyrian merchant documents from the 20th, 19th and 18th centuries BC. Um, because we've got Hittite names, we've got Hittite words for officials and that kind of stuff. Uh, so there's definitely people speaking Hittite for a couple of hundred years before this time in the area. Now, this conventional narrative has come under a lot of fire. Um, you have people speaking other languages that are preserved in the cuneiform documents from Hattusa and other places, most importantly, Hattic. And the conventional narrative as well, as well has been that the indigenous people were the Hattic speaking people. It's, some, it's a language that's related to Caucasus languages, apparently, uh, very poorly understood at the moment, but progress is being made. And the Hittites came in and kind of um, superimposed their culture on them and took over loads of Hattic elements from uh, the local culture. But this is a narrative that has come under quite a bit of fire. It seems that what we've had is, uh, it, Linguists have been able to show that there are relationships between Hattic and Hittite languages. Um, so borrowing relations, which show that people have been living in shared language communities for a very long time. Um, and also from the perspective of genetics, uh, you know, you have to be careful with genetics evidence, but 
some of the most recent genetic studies have showed that it's that basically doesn't seem to have been any massive migration into the Anatolian Peninsula since about 6000 BC. So that's really a very long time before. So I think the Hittites have a claim to be as indigenous as um, anyone else who's living in the area. And this, this old model um, of the invading elites or whatever with their Indo-European languages and all the rest of it is um, probably slightly old fashioned. Okay. What's known about their religious orientation during these two centuries? Yeah, in these two centuries, that's um, rather different to later on. So they, later on, we know them as the uh, people of a thousand gods. Um, and um, it's unclear whether they would have called themselves that at this time. Um, already at this period, we've got a very strong cult of the storm god, essentially. The storm god and his spouse, Hebat, or the sun goddess of Arina, as she's also known, Hebat being a Hurrian name for her. And um, these are at the top of the pantheon, and it's, that's the great temple. And this, this pairing of storm god and spouse is sort of reflects, I suppose, the pairing of king and queen that you typically, typically have at the top of a of the city states that preceded the Hittite state in central Anatolia. So that's right at the top of the pantheon. And then you've got the a whole host of storm god related um, uh, deities. So there's the, they've got a son called Sharama, for example, um, and they are very much. They one could say that we're talking about a nature religion. Right. So there's these protective deities that they're referred to, which are represented as stags. So stag gods are really important. And you've also got from the earliest phases as well, uh, these so-called Hattic religious phases, you have these rituals which um, involve, for example, if you want to build a palace, there's a ritual which involves the king persuading the throne, which is made of wood, to go and intercede for him with the trees on the mountains so that the trees will allow themselves to be cut down by the king so that he can build his palace. And that's a really interesting uh, religious orientation, I think. I want to uh, close out the conversation with uh, an interesting exercise, and I want to go back to the, the, the topic of linguistics again, Mark, that we touched on earlier in the conversation. So the that water example, I found fascinating. So to, to close out the, the conversation today, can you share two other words from your research that you feel have a very uh, natural or intuitive similarity to in, in English? So, a, so a, a cognate. And can you share two words that are, are very dissimilar uh, in in sound. So so two two words from their language that would be very uh, obvious for all of us listening when speaking and listening to to English, and then two words that pr probably wouldn't be as comprehensible when when listening to those two words. Yeah, sure. If I can think of them. Um, so I suppose the um... One that's very clear immediately is uh, the word for knee. So as in the body part, you know, German knee, we spell it with a K as well, don't we? And in Hittite, that's canoe. That's fair enough, mm -hmm. I think, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That shows, I can't think of another one that's absolutely very similar at the moment. Uh, I'm sure there's loads, sorry. it's my, Mine's got no, no problem. Yes. And, and for, for everyone listening, um, Dr. Weeda did not get these questions in advance. <laughs> and this, and I didn't, but I didn't get this question in advance either. I, I, I wrote it down on my, my notes as we were chatting and I thought it'd be a fun exercise to, to, to wrap things up, but it's perfectly fine. If there's not an, another obvious 
uh, cognate that's coming to mind. I, I, I think that's perfectly Not reasonable. coming to mind, but I mean, I can think of quite a few um, that are related. I mean, so, okay, so this is slightly less obvious, but um, mm -hmm. if you think of uh, the word, our word fire, for example, that's um, in, in Hittite, that's pahor. And the ch in the middle gets, gets or pahor, I suppose it is. Um, the ch in the middle gets lost and uh, then the P turns into an F, and then you've basically got fire. Um, so yes, there's quite a few that you ha maybe have to um, apply all sorts of sound changes to, uh, to get the words that we've got, but other ones are less clear, you're quite right. Uh, oh, here's another one that's not so bad. Um, uh, Atta is the word for father, and you think of daddy and stuff like that. And in fact, um, in, Luwian, the word for father, is in fact daddy. And there we go. Um, and words that are not so clear in their relationship. Um, well, I, I mentioned pahor uh, and fire, and that does seem rather clear. Um, but if we think of the word for to kill, for example, uh, quen or gwen it is. So I kill is Gwenmi in Hittite. And this is related to Greek, for example. Um, it's not directly related to our word kill. Um, but that's a, that's a clear Indo-European word. Um, and a further word, well, uh, what can I think of? Um, well, for example, to hide is munai. And again, I don't see how we can relate that to, uh, to the English, English word um, at all. Uh, but, uh, but yes, a lot of this Indo-European language comparison involves reconstructing the kind of um, historical sound changes that have happened between this uh, putative Indo-European mother language and uh, and various different daughter languages, but I think you can see from those examples that um, there's quite a bit of Hittite that is quite closely related to our English words. Is that all right? Yes. Great job, Mark. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, no worries. Thanks a lot. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Whedon wrote. He's author of Hittite Logograms and Hittite Scholarship and co-editor of Hittite Landscape and Geography. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Mark and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.